Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. It was another busy week in seafood news, beginning early on in the week with uh, our earnings still coming out, um, and uh, the news is not great. Everybody's getting hit by COVID. It is a tough, tough period of time for especially those that are selling further downstream, Clearwater, uh, Highliner, those types of companies are really having a hard time with this new wave of COVID lockdowns, uh, especially those selling in the United States. And uh, and, and it's going to be rough. Um, everyone's saying that, um, that uh, investors should prepare for a not so great fourth quarter. But we will leave that behind and try to talk about a few more positive things uh, because there are a lot. And I think one of the ones that really caught our eye this week was uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon and still CEO and the world's richest man. He's worth around 180 million, sorry, 180 billion dollars. Uh, and he has finally decided that he is going to get philanthropic. He's really enjoyed playing with his money. Uh, one of the projects, Blue Origins, is his uh, moonshot project. And uh, he's gotten into all kinds of other things. He owns the Washington Post. So he, uh, he has money and he, he is uh, wanting to spend it. But he's been pretty roundly criticized for not being very philanthropic, not giving a lot of money back. And Amazon, as all of us are probably aware, has a sizable footprint, uh, carbon footprint. Um, and I certainly am playing a role in that. A lot of my, uh, a lot of my uh, food and a lot of other things are coming via Amazon in this uh, socially distanced era. So I'm certainly part of the problem, no question. However, uh, I don't have $180 billion to spend to try to fix it. So Bezos set up what was called the uh, Bezos Earth Fund earlier this year to try to tackle climate change. And he pledged $10 billion, which to him is not that much money, but to the rest of the world, it's, it's significant. And that $10 billion is supposed to go towards technologies, towards uh, companies, towards ultimately towards pushing forward um, uh, companies um, that are going to uh, companies and projects that are going to help reduce carbon footprint and help mitigate climate change. Now, the first grants were given earlier this week uh, to around 16 NGOs, I believe, or 16 groups, I should say, not all NGOs, but 16 groups um, to help tackle the issue. And one of those was WWF, who received a hundred million dollar grant to. Uh, look at several things, but one of them that was, I guess you could say, earmarked was seaweed, uh, commercial seaweed farming and production. And we had some thoughts about that here at Interfish, uh, and uh, it's it's uh, it's exciting. There's a lot of exciting technologies out there. Uh, seaweed is certainly one of them, but um, we weren't overly impressed with that being the big uh, the big idea that somebody like Bezos would uh, would land on when it comes to aquaculture, particularly uh, aquaculture technology and its ability to uh, to feed the world. So, John, that kind of sets us up. Um, you know, what? There's a whole lot of other uh, other magnates and and um, funds 
and groups that are putting money into new technology. And it is moving very, very fast. And we've hit on some of those, uh, whether it's plant-based um, uh, proteins for food, whether it's alternative feed ingredients. Um, there's a lot of exciting things happening. But are these, uh, are these technologies um, the ones where these entrepreneurs should be putting their money? Or should they be looking at pushing along more established technologies that are already on the cutting edge and commercially proven? Well, I think I would agree with uh, the premise of your column on Bezos, which is seaweed's great, but um, probably not the place to start um, as far as the sea is concerned, at least in my opinion. Um, but I think this is, this is one challenge with impact investing in general. Because the idea is you want to do some, you want to swing for the fence and have a massive impact with your money on climate change or whatever, <clears throat> whatever it may be. However, that puts them in a tough place because it kind of eliminates in a lot of ways them looking at current harvesting techniques or farming techniques or things that are already working but need investment to improve to make them more carbon neutral to maybe bring solar into an operation so you can cut down on the use of electricity and those types of things so it it, it seems it seems like that is the struggle for a lot of these impact investors to me you pointed out in the in the column that you know they they want something flashy something that'll get a lot of press and and that's okay i i understand that but um, I think there's probably a lot less expensive ways they could put money into, at least in the seafood world, um, into the harvesting and farming side of seafood that would make a, a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's um, there's a lot of uh, of startups. If if that's the uh, the kind of goal is to um, accelerate some of these groups, there's a lot of startups out there um, that are really complementary of existing farming uh, systems. And I think that's a far better use of, uh, of VC or um, high net worth funds or whoever wants to put money into these things. Um, I think that's a far better use of it because, um, as you said, it can help uh, it can help some of these established industries improve their footprint. It can help them become more profitable, more efficient. And, you know, I think that those types of nudges, they aren't maybe that exciting always. They don't seem that exciting necessarily. Um, but that's what leads to development. Things like genetics and fish health, mm -hmm. you know, they don't often grab headlines. Well, they grab our headlines, you know, but we're seafood nerds. But um, genetics and fish health and, and those types of, um, I, I guess I would call them incremental changes, um, roll up your sleeves in the lab. Um, make make uh, make the the industry better by um, by actually focusing on the biology. Those aren't the most exciting necessarily um, uh, sectors that you're going to see kind of big um, big splashes, you know. Um, and so I think a lot of these uh, a lot of folks really want to find that um, that exciting breakout. Um, they want to they want to be um, you know, associated with some kind of major breakthrough, a 
uh, on Impossible Foods, you know, or whatever, you know, Uber, whatever it might be. Um, I think funders really, really want to be the ones that they can say, hey, look at that. I am responsible for that. Um, you know, I, I think also there's there's maybe a lack of understanding of just how advanced the aquaculture industry already is. I think the ag investing world, well, I know, we know, the ag investing world has discovered seafood in a big, big way, especially aquaculture. And everybody thinks they're the first ones to discover it. Um, but the money is coming in um, more and more, uh, which I think is a real positive. Um, but again, I think there um, there's maybe a little bit of a um, a little bit of a lack of awareness of just how much innovation has been uh, already occurring, and the kinds of minds that are already in the sector. Um, and that's exciting because they're about to get, um, you know, some some uh, recognition or some financing and and some um, potential for growth with all this attention. Um, but uh, but again, it, it really has to do with um, with what types of things uh, people are funding. So I wanted to highlight um, as part of this. Um, we did a story. Our colleague uh, Marta Njostad in in Bergen, did a story on uh, Norwegian development license projects. Um, now, this is um, this is a, a fascinating project that I, it, it's a great model. Not everyone has the the type of uh, public money that Norway has to be able to do this, or um, not many countries have aquaculture such a central part of their uh, of their economy. But the development licenses were essentially a scheme that was established to encourage innovation in the sector, particularly in salmonid farming, um, to try to address issues like uh, effluent, like sea lice, disease. Um, the idea was um, that if you were awarded one of the licenses, you could uh, potentially convert that into an ordinary license. Um, for about 10, kron or 10 million krona, rather, per license. Um, and that's about 780 metric tons of, uh, of biomass would, would, um, would be given as part of that license. So the incentives were really, really good. That's a sweet deal uh, if you're willing to go through the time, effort, and energy of crafting and testing out these greenfield projects. So um, Marta did a fantastic job highlighting the uh, 20 that were given, um, that were approved out of 100 uh, applications uh, between 2016 and 2020. And it, it's a fascinating look. If you haven't read the story, take a look at it. Um, it's a fascinating look at what is being done uh, in uh, salmon farming in particular. Um, to try to mitigate some of these issues and really inject a lot of creativity into farming. If you want to see the look, uh, if you want to see a look at what the future of aquaculture is going to look like, um, there's uh, there's 20 great examples um, that, that uh, you can point to. So, John, just in looking at, at that, I mean, um, you know, what what's your sort of takeaways when you see the types of projects that were put forward uh, Marta updated uh, updated us on which ones were um, now um, you know uh, operational, which ones are still on the drawing board. But but which of those projects kind of jumped out at you? 
they all caught my attention just because of how futuristic. I mean, you look at these uh, drawings, or in some cases, they're the actual um, farms themselves, and you know, it's it's Star Trek esque in the sense of you know looking so futuristic. I I mean, when I look at these, I see. I see these as solutions to many of the problems that are are plague have plagued you know uh, typical traditional net pen farming for so long. You know, a lot of these are closed containment to some degree, which you know is always a big criticism of of open net pens, um, and a lot of them just to me they they they're just so spot on in the sense of they're they're designed to solve challenges facing this sector right now. And, and these challenges aren't going away, you know, sea lice, these types of things, they're costing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in losses. And these farms are hopefully uh, part of that solution to, to cut that down. Now that said, there's a lot of investment that has to go into these. You you look at these, you can just tell how complicated they are. But I really do think they are not that far away from being a lot more common than they certainly are now because they're just in development stages. Well, and I think you know a lot of these a lot of these projects will go on to and to inspire maybe more uh, scaled down or more realistic. Um, projects you know so so these were all pretty ambitious and if you look at um some of the sizes of some of these like norlock's uh hob farm um that is uh just a, a phenomenal uh phenomenal project and um just seeing the photos of it you'll you'll be surprised for those of you that haven't haven't seen it of just how large it is and um yeah how uh, just how different it is from standard uh standard net pens and Similar with um, with some of the other projects that are out there, like the egg that um, that Hauga Aqua and uh, Movie were working on together. Um, you know, the 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 I, the thing is getting them out the door, getting a beta test out there is really the way that these technologies take off. And you have to really hand it to Norway because by uh, by allowing for these companies to um to take this uh to take this on and giving that them that incentive of converting that into a conventional license eventually norway has done a huge service to the global aquaculture sector um you know a lot of these designs okay you can't go in there and 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 see how every little piece works but a lot of these designs are are out there and available um as a matter of fact i it may be that that technology in fact i think that technology or at least some of it has to be made public as part of the uh, license agreement but don't don't quote me on that but uh at any rate it's fairly easy to see these projects um you know and and how they're um what the designs are um you know they're describing them in in detail so it's not like this is proprietary tech this is stuff that will be and can be used um worldwide and, and that's pretty impressive because essentially these could be used to create a rival sector for example um just an example too um there is a uh a china-based company 
um, that has uh, been working on a subsea operation, or I wouldn't call it subsea. It's it's kind of variable. It can move up and down through the water column, and uh, and and it's um, has ultimately the goal is to have the capability of producing twenty thousand metric tons. Um, and and when you think about that, um, this is just just I think it's about sixty kilometers off the coast. When you think about that when China decides, yeah, you know what, we we should have a a uh, salmon farming industry. Um, that's just a snap of the fingers to um, to make that reality. And so, um, and and these projects are some of them um, CIMC raffles. I think made um, I, I believe they either did Hav Farm or Ocean Farm one. So already Chinese companies are, are aware and, and capable and have the technology to, to build these things in their, in their domestic shipyards. So I, I think that's pretty, um, that's, uh, you know, to risk that um, potential competition for an industry is unique. And, uh, and I would hope that other countries can, can um, encourage that same kind of growth and development because it shows a big belief in the sector, but it also shows confidence that there's more innovation to come within within Norway. Yeah, you know, and just cutting down that carbon footprint of shipping salmon around the world is, you know, that is a climate change uh, impact that's for the good. And it, it, this kind of just goes back to our earlier discussion with Bezos is this type of technology is what I'm talking about. This type of technology is is being developed. It's it's, you know, it's along the development curve and um, it needs money maybe to finish or, you know, whatever, whatever it needs funding for. That to me is probably a better use of your billions. But, you know, that, that's just my opinion. I don't have billions. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, mentioning. um carbon footprint is interesting because it's the the land-based sector is another one uh ras and all the attention being given to that right now um that is certainly crying out for more innovation there is money going into it um we've certainly talked about it many many times that there's there's money for um for projects that are on the drafting board um, but there is a lot of fantastic uh, technology and a lot of fantastic minds that are ready to um, to make those projects and those systems even more efficient and even more um, even even more adaptable to all kinds of uh, conditions. And again, that very quickly has an impact on reducing the carbon footprint of um, of the seafood um, that that people consume. So. You know, there's, there's sometimes there's, um, sometimes some of these solutions are kind of on your front door. Um, and, and again, I think it's easy to want to leapfrog that and say, yeah, but I, I set the, the seafood, um, you know, the, the seafood, um, industry trend, which I don't mean to bash, uh, seaweed. Um, seaweed is, is great. I, I eat, I eat it. I eat seaweed chips. I eat sushi. Um, but it's just not going to feed the world. Um, and, uh, and, and at least I hope that it does not replace, um, seafood. Um, because I, I do think that, um, I do think it's, a, it's something that people want in their, 
uh, seafood is something people want in their diet and has a, the ability to um, to uh, to grow and expand as an industry as well. Where seaweed is, it doesn't. It's not going to employ a lot of people. It's really not. When you look at the opportunities for coastal employment um, with the aquaculture industry, which is kind of does it, you know, it does double duty. But I, I probably came off as a little too harsh on seaweed. I don't mean to be. It's got some <laughs> amazing properties, and it's it's great. And I think it is by volume the 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 most far, or I think it's the most cultivated slash harvested marine product in the world. I think I need to check on that. But I I don't you know I don't really know where it kind of ends up, but. Um, yeah, but it's not ending up as you know as a center of the plate. Yeah, I'm not anti seaweed, but it it's not a scallop. That's for damn sure. So <laughs> that's true. It is not a scallop. So, uh, so John, you have been uh, up to your knees in research, working on an upcoming business intelligence report that we have coming out on uh, on the outlook for 2021. Um, obviously, COVID. Uh, plays a big role in uh, in what that report is going to be looking at. So you've been talking to experts from around the world about what the seafood industry needs to be thinking about. Um, obviously, there's a lot that's happened, and, and part of this is digesting and, and trying to find meaning from what's happened so far. But what are they telling you in terms of what the sea... Just tell us a little bit about some of the trends and what the seafood industry uh what the seafood industry is is probably in for in 2021 yeah so we're we're putting this report together and we're trying to get a sense of how seafood will be changed by covid in in a in a meaningful way a significant way so um Obviously, we're still in this pandemic, so it's hard to, to know where, where we'll end up when it's all said and done. But we, we are seeing some, some very significant trends that most the people we're talking to, both on the supply side, the analytical side, and then retailers and, and uh, distributors and food service people, they, they feel there's some of these trends that are going to stick. So, for example, everybody's probably doing a lot more takeout, a lot more delivery, a lot more curbside pickup, that type of stuff. That Those programs were all in development in some stage or in use in some stage at retail and food service. Everybody knows that. But what what has happened is they've been suit the technology has been supercharged uh under covid and there i i've i've spoken with so many people and everybody thinks that's a, a long-term stay st solution i mean you're seeing restaurant designs for the future that have almost no seating space but they have like six lanes of drive uh drive-through some are drive-through just normal the way we know it now. Some are for delivery drivers like Grubhub and those guys to zip through, pick up their uh, delivery and take it to wherever they're taking it. Uh, so, you, you know, you can see there's a shift underway right now. And, you know, it was interesting. I talked to uh, Wade Hansen at Technomic. Technomic, a wonderful um, 
uh, analytical group. They look at the food service sector. And I was asking them, I said, you know, uh, so much of seafood at the food service level is sold at the higher end, you know, the white tablecloths, uh, the upper casual dining establishments, chains. And, I, you know, everybody's trying to figure out that was that was rocked, obviously. And everybody's trying to figure out when that returns. And I, I, he really shocked me. He said, well, that segment of the industry, which is so critical to seafood food service sales, will not be returning to uh, its 2019 performance for at least four or five years or maybe longer. And the reason is because, because a lot of that is independent restaurants. And those are, you know, single person restaurants or small, small chains. They, I mean, we lost a hundred thousand restaurants in the U S this year, by the time the year is over, that's the NRA's prediction. Um, so, you know, you've got to, you've got to reboot all those and probably under new ownership or whatever it may be, it's going to take a long time. The ones that aren't doing well, however, at least on the food service side are, you know, the, what we call the, the quick serve or, or the limited uh, restaurant in the sense you don't go there really for an occasion or anything. So it's the Chipotle's and those, those guys are crushing it right now <laughs> so yeah and the problem is seafood doesn't fit so well in there there's not a lot of seafood so i mean there's uh white fish you know there's fish and chips kind of-esque stuff and that 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 does pretty well there there's some salmon and some shrimp but it's not a you know it's not very hospitable to seafood and that may be one of the big challenges uh figuring how to crack the code there beyond what we already we have so that, that i found that interesting and of course the whole retail side is, is fascinating i mean just go and look at some of the financial the quarterly reports for any retailer right now they're they're killing it their business is just gone cuckoo uh largely because people can't go spend at restaurants like they want to so uh and seafood there is doing well i mean it's so well documented the can the frozen but even in the u.s the the fresh cases are doing well according to uh people i talked to and all this uh pre-packaged stuff um in the chill cases so uh you know most people feel there's there's a good time in uh retail for seafood right now and we'll see if that lasts but if you just judge by can't just judge by canned tuna okay it's spiked we all know that but it's held it's it, of course it's not at the high levels it was in march when everybody was freaking out but it has held like five percent growth since then which is significant in a category that was going backward until 2020 <laughs> so uh yeah so there's a gonna be a lot in this report i'm 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 really excited about it because i think it it will help people whether they're on the supply or the buy side get a sense of where seafood is is headed when we kind of emerge from this uh, dark 2020 that we're in. So you, you think, and just from the people that you've spoken with, that these changes are going to be permanent? Because I've sort of had that discussion 
um, you know, with with uh, with people on the phone. Um, you know, whether or not uh, consumer spending will spike when when it's uh, the vaccine is is kind of out and um, and it's it's kind of safe to safe to go back into the water. But you're hearing that some of these these changes like ghost kitchens like the the uh, i think you sent over a really interesting um design for a, a shake shack which is what you're referring to earlier about the different drive through lanes and things so there's the feeling that 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 is going to be the new normal then that that it's not those won't just sort of be kind of novelties um in in a year or two well, th- that that is the feeling, and w- what's underpinning all of this is because of COVID. In some ways, consumers have discovered this whole new level of convenience, and by that I mean, you know, I don't have to go to the grocery store to pick up my stuff. I can just hit this app, and it will be here this afternoon at two p.m. For a lot of people, they may not have. They may not have used that uh, convenience before, but they've been forced to. And a lot of this is just that. They've been forced to. Why are people eating more seafood? Because they've been forced to bring it into their homes, get over their phobia, and learn how to cook the stuff. And it's not hard to cook, by the way. So uh, COVID has been this great force in the sense of making people do things they were maybe familiar with maybe used a little bit but now have embraced so yeah they're there i mean you don't see all the major restaurant chains come out in the last few months with these new designs and make a big deal about it if they're not planning on putting money into it i mean i guess it could fail people would you know not not use it but it sure doesn't seem that way and i uh, it's getting back to the technomic uh fella wade hansen again i asked him you know let's assume the vaccine works and you know and by mid next year you know we've got enough people vaccinated the herd is you know whatever and uh what happens at restaurants and not just you know not just the ones that have maintained and his feeling is that you know there's going to be an explosion in in restaurant dining just because people didn't celebrate this celebration or that one or that one and they want they want to recapture that they want to be out with people and um problem is there won't be as many restaurants to go to but that that'll fix itself over time but so yeah i just i think you know as far as seafood is concerned at least from what i'm gathering right now uh, and i still got a lot of research to do but it looks like this is this could end up being you know i hate to say it a good thing for seafood just given it's a terrible pandemic and all the bad side about it but uh this industry may actually uh benefit in some ways well uh let's leave it there on a a positive note because there's so much negative news out there and it's going to be interesting to see kind of what companies need to do to react so we'll look forward to hearing more about that uh and reading more on our pages and then seeing that report 
So uh, as we wrap up here, want to make sure that everyone is registered. If you are free to join us on December 1st and 2nd, that is just under two weeks away now. Uh, we will be having our Seafood Investor Forum, uh, the digital version, which um, I'm really excited about. The speaker lineup, there's still more to come, but we have uh, Christoph Baldegger from Bonafide. We have Colborn Giskiodegord from Columbia Salmon. That's a new uh, land-based salmon farming project. We have Tuna Hunstad from Fared Capital. Mats Johansson is the CEO of Ocker Bio Marine. Uh, we have Ignacio Kleiman from Antarctica Advisors, Henning Lund from Pareto Securities, Ohed Maimon from the Kingfish Company, Yus uh, Matisson from Treco, Larsen Mettler from S2G Ventures, Amy Novogratz from Aquaspark, uh, Brighton Shang from Aquabite, Tortalsas from Neptune, Jordi Trias from Stolt Sea Farm, and Sylvia Wolf from Aquabounty Technologies. It is an amazing, amazing lineup of guests uh and as i said we've still got a few more uh that are that are going to be coming in so uh again visit intrafishevents.com and you can find uh find us there and uh, and register to join us and remember you can go to intrafish.com uh sign up for our newsletters there so we have all kinds of uh ways that you can keep up with us uh and all kinds of ways to cater to whatever your interest is in the seafood sector so that's it for now folks Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.